0: Tax and accounting firms know the stress that comes with onboarding and collaborating with clients. Sure, you're trying to grow your business, but adding new clients can really stretch your team. Buying a lot of software to fix problems is expensive and can even create more confusion for both your clients and your team. Imagine having a single solution designed to support your most critical needs, like secure document management, workflow automation, PBC list processes, and e-signatures. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, Sharefile, later in the episode.
1: Well, that's interesting what you said, David, about like the incentive to allow fake accounts on your platform is actually really high for an app like Cash App because you want to show user growth. So it it doesn't matter Like if you're unethical, it doesn't matter if that is legit or fraud. You just want to see money moving through your system. And also you make money on every transaction. So this kind of reminds me of like Twitter's problems with fake users and a lot of social media platforms problems with fake users because it looks good for the investors, but it's not real. And it's a negative, very negative experience for your actual users.
0: Coming to you weekly from the OnPay recording studio, this is the Cloud Accounting Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver and I'm David Leary. We're going to talk about an accounting fraud indicator that may signal coming economic trouble. We've got tax news. What do you got on your list? Everybody's
0: adding AI. You know, last week about. Intuit it to TurboTax this week, added it to MailChimp. Other apps are adding it. And I actually had a tweet out there that, like, maybe a year from now, that's just table stakes. Having AI in your app is just table stakes. And I think you sent me an email today about Grammarly. And last week, it's, at what point is this not even a story? <laughs> like, if that's where my brain is yeah. at on the AI stuff. And then I did see something about AI um, people that it could lead to more accountants, but I actually found an example, maybe it won't lead to more accountants which puts us in the same, like maybe AI is not going to be the hero we all thought it was once. So well, those type of stories.
1: Yeah. No, I agree with you that AI is just going to be table stakes. The, the Just improving all the text we write, like I'm already doing that. I uh, saw it rolled out in Grammarly. There's a Jasper plugin for Chrome where I can write an email and then ask it to improve my writing. And like that's, that's available now today. You can buy that or you can just drop stuff into chat GPT and have it, improve your writing um i think we're all going to be using it if you're not using it you are wasting your time because what like why why write emails anymore you could just write a list of bullet points and say compose the email
0: well i think the it's the first draft right like yeah because that's sometimes when you like i want to write a blog post and getting those first two or three paragraphs out of your through your fingers into the keyboard into the screen it's just really hard but you could type eight words and chat gpt will give you enough of a a rough draft that you now you can massage from there, right? Yeah. Edit and massage yeah. and clean up, and you're, it from a it really cuts down your creative
1: process. It's it's either the first draft or it's the final draft. I use it for both. So final draft, right? Then it's the clean this up so that it's ready to go. Check for grammar, make it sound more professional, that sort of thing. Like but it's it does still a great job at that that. the
0: level where it can fact check you, right? Like uh, no, I, yeah, that's what you have yet. to do. That's what you I have, have to do. Yeah.
1: yeah. So I was using it to compose uh, my latest LinkedIn newsletter, and it got the year wrong, right? And so I had to really know the facts of the story that I was talking about in order to know that it wasn't 2022, it was 2023, stuff like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, the accuracy, accuracy probably means something in our industry.
1: <laughs> we got a few folks who have joined us on the live stream today. Michael, Trinity, great to see you. It's a a light attendance on the live stream. I am not surprised as we are recording on Thursday, April 13th. So (laughs) everyone's trying to get those last few returns in, get those uh, clients taken care of. Let's get to it. Shall we, David? Yeah, I think so. My top story this week is from the Wall Street Journal. Accounting fraud indicator signals coming economic trouble. A tool to identify corporate earnings manipulation finds the most risk in over 40 years. So if you are on... Team, recession is coming. This is your data point that you can use the next time you're at the barbecue or at the happy hour uh, to warn everybody that it's about to happen.
0: And this tool, just to rewind for a second, is this
1: a tool that's existed the last 40 years or it's a new tool that they applied against 40 years of data? Uh, Well, so the scary part is this is a tool that was used to predict Enron. So it's been around? Yes, and it's been tested. It's called the M-score. Do you want to guess what M stands for, David?
0: It has to do with fraud, but I can't of yes. any M words for that. Is it money? Is it the money score?
1: No, it is manipulation.
0: Manipulation yes. score.
1: Oh, okay. It's the manipulation it, oh, score.
0: It's so much like friendlier when it's just the M score. <laughs> it sounds like a candy bar.
1: Trinity says morality. Morality. Yes, well, so let me tell you about the M score. Since the 1990s, according to the Wall Street Journal. The metric has been used to identify red flags at individual companies. Now, a professor named Mesid D. Benesh, he's a professor of accounting at Indiana University who developed this M-score. He and several co-authors have calculated an aggregate score for nearly 2,000 companies. And the pattern in the historical data is disturbing. The probability of manipulation in financial statements usually rises rapidly in the quarters before the economy tips into recession. So the way this score works is, and there's a chart on the screen for you folks who are watching us live, um, is it's calculated from eight ratios on a company's balance sheet, all numbers that public companies report quarterly and compares ratios to earnings statements from a year earlier. And basically what happens is that some of these metrics involve, actually all of these metrics involve accruals and deferrals. And one of them is receivables. So if a company wants to uh, inflate its earnings, it might be aggressively pushing um, forward income into the current period, right? Revenue. And what happens when they do that? Well, accounts receivable goes up. Another flag is if a company reports higher values of assets that can't be sold and that clear, aren't clearly identified as plant, property, or equipment. A third metric would be changes in accruals, such as when expenses have been incurred but not yet paid. And then another is related to depreciation. So you you take these eight metrics, you weight them all and you put them into this M score and you chart out the metric over time. And what you find is these peaks and valleys in the M score. And the M score tends to go up right before a recession.
0: the recessions are for the, obviously, live stream it it might be hard to sell contrast wise but those gray bars are the recession years
1: yes so the the one in 2008 right the great recession the m score started in the second quarter of 2002 at 0.29 percent and rose over the next few years until it reached its peak actually during the recession the second quarter of 2008 and it was uh 0.5 percent so it basically doubled well not quite doubled but you know went from like 0.3 to 0.5 and you see this trend in in this chart which makes sense right because what happens before a recession is companies are trying and trying to make their earnings like you say david they're trying to beat the street and they can't yeah right they can't so what do they do they resort to earnings manipulation and that means stretching the envelope everywhere they can when it comes to accounting. So according to this indicator, we're in for another recession. And so,
0: when is the word stretching the envelope and when's the word fraud? Like, can you you is stretching the envelope just, hey, this is legally what we're allowed to do and play these games and book revenue over here and move this to here versus straight up fraud?
1: Well, right. yeah, and that's the, that's the question um, that is at the heart of the Silicon Valley bank collapse.
0: This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by ShareFile. Numerous times in this podcast, Blake and I have discussed the importance of delivering a modern, elevated client experience. Your clients expect more than just the expected service. They want to be able to easily collaborate and securely exchange documents with you, regardless of the location or device. That's where ShareFile comes in. ShareFile is a collaborative client experience solution that is built with accounting firms in mind. It is easy to use, backed by best in class security and fully customizable to fit your needs, all will offer your clients a compelling experience. By consolidating your engagements into a single secure solution that can be accessed anywhere at any time, Sharefile helps you improve your client experience and increase your workflow efficiency. ShareFile also offers complete document management, custom branded client portals, workflow automation, e-signatures, and soon, document requests for PBC lists, as well as new engagement spaces to simplify collaboration between your team and clients. If you're ready to deliver a modern client experience with ShareFile, head over to cloudaccountingpodcastpromo slash sharefile. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash S-H-A-R-E-F-I-L-E.
1: Is what Silicon Valley Bank did legit? Is it a failure on the part of the auditors not to see it coming? Was it fraud by management? It's hardly ever fraud. It's so easy to get away with this stuff, right? Like remember back in the Great Recession, how not a single executive ever was criminally prosecuted for anything that happened? Yeah. Right. She's like Martha Stewart. They got Martha. Yeah. <laughs> they they get Martha Stewart and and they, they get the celebrities on the on the crypto, right? Yeah. It's kind of wild. And here's a related story from accounting today. Banks may be using accounting maneuvers to avoid reporting losses. And this has to do with Silicon Valley Bank because let's distill what happened at Silicon Valley Bank into a very explain it like I'm five kind of situation. So Silicon Valley Bank got a bunch of deposits from tech companies because all the tech companies banked with Silicon Valley Bank. Uh, And when money was cheap, when interest rates were near zero, It was like free money for all these VCs basically. So they poured it into tech companies. And what do those tech companies do? They turned around and they put it in Silicon Valley Bank as deposits. SVB didn't know what to do with all this money. Normally banks make loans to other businesses, but SVB didn't really have the infrastructure to do that. So they just went and took the money and bought treasury bonds, safe places to park the money. Well, it's only safe if you think that interest rates are gonna stay at zero forever. And when interest rates started rising in a a, a seven month period, they doubled, tripled,
0: you know, you didn't see that coming.
1: Yeah. So interest rates go from like close to 0% up to what is it now? Like we're, we're approaching 5% here. And that was like in the course of a year. And so all of a sudden SVBs investment in those treasury bonds and all those bonds that are tied to the fed rate, they start to lose money, but here's the trick banks can classify bonds that they intend to hold until maturity as HTM, held to maturity. And you can carry those bonds on your balance sheet at cost. You don't have to recognize losses or gains or anything on those those bonds. You just hold them at cost, right? And so the question is, right, are banks doing that improperly? Are they holding all these bonds at cost saying, "We're we're never gonna sell these, we're just gonna wait until maturity so they don't have to recognize the losses. And that's what happened to SVB is is they said, oh, we can hold these to maturity. KPMG is the auditor. KPMG signs off on that and says, that's fine. But they couldn't. And so then right after KPMG says okay on the audit, signs off, then SVB has to go and sell some of those bonds in order to meet depositor withdrawals because the tech industry is in a recession and they don't have as many deposits anymore. Uh, and that is what sparked the bank run. They announced a $1.8 billion loss. Everyone was like, oh, crap. SVB is actually upside down because they'd lost so much money on the bonds. They'd lost $15 billion on the bonds. It because almost... you have
0: to, to, if 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 the government's paying a higher percentage now for bonds and you have bonds at the lower percentage, you have to sell them. If you want them off your balance sheet, you have to sell them at a discount. 70, 60,
1: 70% maybe. Exactly, exactly. So SVB had all these unrealized losses. They suddenly realized them. And then everybody freaked out, and there was a bank run.
0: So is this it's, an accounting standards issue? Because if I'm understanding, remembering correctly, in some piece of previous episodes, like with uh, crypto, like these like startups, if you you buy crypto, and it's on your balance sheet, and now the crypto is actually worth less. Like, it's on your balance sheet at the value in theory it was. Well,
1: right? well, so yeah, crypto. Uh, I don't know if this has changed, but right until in the past, it was it was. You had to write it down if it lost value, and you couldn't write it back up. I Maybe mean, it, it, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. okay, it
0: was the opposite. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: It was more conservative. Okay, more conservative than this. And so the question is, um, you know, with KPMG as the auditors, because they signed off at twelve thirty one, two thousand twenty two, and the bank was not yet underwater, as we've talked about on the show yet. They were, they'd almost wiped out all their equity with these unrealized losses, but not quite. So KPMG was like, we're talking like the water is about to come over into the boat, right? And the question is, those, those held to maturity bonds, in order to do that, in order to hold them, or in order to classify them as HTM, you have to have the ability and the intent to hold them until maturity. So the question is, well, did SVB actually have the ability and intent to hold them to maturity? And if they didn't, then KPMG could face lawsuits or, or be at risk in a lawsuit by the investors. And then the other question that the Wall Street Journal brought up this week is, should KPMG have issued a critical audit matter? And critical audit matters were invented in 2017 by the PCAOB, but haven't really been used. And this seems like it would be a perfect time to issue a critical audit matter. It's a complex question. What's exactly the definition of a CAM? Let me look it up.
0: But bank runs are are psychological. So if they issued some sort of warning, the bank run price still would have happened. Maybe it would have happened a couple of weeks sooner or maybe the when they did the December 31st financials. Well, like, uh, like what, what good is this warning? I, I guess? it doesn't <laughs> actually stop the behavior, of the action that occurred.
1: Well, I think there's two things, right? One is first of all, if there wasn't this concept of HTM securities and simply everything that's marketable was just marked to market on a bank balance sheet, which I think personally it they should be, right? Like if there's a market for an investment, wouldn't you want banks to mark those to market in order to know whether the assets and the liabilities are real? The whole idea behind a bank yeah. is assets should be greater than liabilities. Otherwise, I the guess bank's for underwater. some assets where so,
0: maybe the market's somewhat pre- pre- predictable and stable is not the right word, but like when it comes to the bonds, yes, maybe. Yeah. Like If they have other assets that are really variable, I don't know if that's the best route either.
1: Right. But if there's a clear market for it and there's a market price like why not? So that's one thing. Is if that had been the case, then SVB's losses would have started in like Q1, Q2, Q3 throughout the year and people would have seen that coming. So that's one thing. And the other thing I forgot. But I wanted to tell you what a critical audit matter is. So a CAM, critical audit matter is defined as any matter arising from the audit of the financial statements that was communicated or required to be communicated to the audit committee that relates to accounts or disclosures that are material to the financial statements. So it needs to be something that's material and involved especially challenging, subjective or complex auditor judgment. So does the treatment of the HTM bonds involve especially challenging, subjective or complex auditor judgment? Because we know that they are material. And that's going to be the question in any lawsuit, I think. And this is a real test of whether or not the whole idea of a CAM even is going to work. And it's obviously not improved audits because auditors aren't issuing CAMs. The Wall Street Journal also looked into nine other banks that have high HTM bond exposure. And none of the auditors at those banks issued a CAM, even though those banks are also exposed. They did issue CAMs for... Possible loan losses, which is the thing that happened in two thousand eight that created the economy. So they're looking backwards, not forwards. Yeah. But the whole point of a CAM is to help investors, you know, look forward. Right. That's the idea. So anyway, that is my uh, audit beat so, for this week. I guess before we we'll leave on. that,
0: because I kind of have some stories that are tied to fraud and/or audit a little bit, but this really ties in well because the lawsuits. So you said KPMG was named in the lawsuit. Yeah.
1: I think there has been, they have
0: now been named in a lawsuit, lawsuit, right? Yeah. And I saw some takes on that saying like, oh, this is why the big firms are going to split the audit from everything else because like, a lot of the other partners don't want to deal with the headache of a lawsuit like this. There's a whole part of KPMG that doesn't want to be exposed to this. But then I think this week as well, apparently if you saw EY is going to roll back, they're not going to split now. Yeah. That was so, so I'm seeing like this there's like here's why people are gonna split and then at the same week EY is not gonna split.
1: Yeah. I and that's been like big news. And it's like I guess if you work at EY or at a big four firm, you care. But I don't know why anyone else gives a crap about any of that, right? Like who cares? <laughs> who cares? It's not like anything would really change at EY if they split up. The audits would be done the same way, the consulting would be done the same way. And this has happened before, and all that happens is the the two firms, you know, separate, and then one of them grows back the audit practice.
0: Just grows to the same size.
1: Yeah, it's like a tumor that keeps growing <laughs> back, right? That's how it works. So it's funny though, like the you know who what torpedoed the EY split was the partnership model, because the U.S. partners uh, had a revolt, and apparently it was a bunch of retired partners who pressured current partners on the board to bail on the deal. And I think it's because they were worried that their retirements would be impacted. So this is exactly the same problem that small accounting firms face, which is you have these retired partners who are getting paid out by a system that they are no longer contributing to, but they still can control.
0: Yeah, they have. Con- it's the control,
1: yeah. Yeah. So another win for the partnership model, but a potential loss for the accounting profession, I suppose. So
0: it's, there's, there's one fraud, I thought was interesting, that's not so much tied to accounting fraud per se. And then definitely there's some quote unquote fraud with blocks. So you want to talk about block or
1: J.P. Morgan Chase? Before we do that, why don't oh. we hear from one of our sponsors? This episode
0: of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Relay. Between Blake and myself, we now have three, four, or maybe five business entities, 20 or so checking accounts, and dozens and dozens of virtual cards. It would be impossible to manage all of this if we weren't using Relay as our small business bank. Relay is truly a part of the tech stack we use to run our businesses. Relay allows Blake and I to each have our own logins, we can grant access to our team, and even our accountant without sharing passwords or two-factor authentication codes. Relay allows us to grow and scale our banking needs without ever going into a physical branch. I recently added an account to receive inbound merchant services with just a few clicks, and I had to create a payroll checking account, again, just a few clicks, and I instantly had access to my ACH info to give to my payroll provider. With Relay's virtual cards, we can issue debit cards to our team around the world for needed business expenses. I can instantly spin up a new Visa debit card and set both daily and monthly spending limits. And when a team member doesn't need their card, I can freeze it until they need to use it again. To learn more about using Relay in your firm and with your clients, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Relay. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-L-A-Y.
1: All right, David, what do you got?
0: Let's talk about the the JPMorgan Chase thing first here. So I don't know if you saw this story, but this is another fraud committed by a startup CEO. CEO.
1: Oh, I'm so glad you brought this one, David. I love this one.
2: And, and this I've been watching for
0: a couple of weeks. And essentially, um, Charlie Jibice had a startup that was like targeting students, and I think it helped them refinance their student loan information. And it was in that space. And of course, hey, J- somebody like JPMorgan Chase would, could be interested in that. Like, oh. I could reach all these new banking customers while they're still in college. So she was able to get JPMorgan Chase to write her a check for $175 million. But then it turns out-
1: Hold on. $175 million?
0: Yes. So they acquired her company for $175 million because they thought they were buying email addresses, right? Like students. They could possibly market other banking services to. Totally. Well, ter- turns out she had a platform. She said she had 4.25 million users. But apparently she paid a data scientist and basically purchased some real data and then made up the other. So basically, you know, instead of using ChatGPT to say, create a bunch of student email addresses, first names and last names, she paid a data scientist to do this. And so JP Morgan Chase later on has now figured this out. I don't know if they passed these leads on to their salespeople and people started to realize these are all bad and fake. So she's gone. Um, she's now been arrested and charged with fraud, right? So it's a full circle, she's been arrested. But my big question, and I know this is not an accounting auditing story, but I'm like, isn't it somebody's job? <laughs> like just to make sure, before you before you hit you hit send on that 175 million dollars, yeah. Like, are we are we buying a real thing? And maybe the who who bought all the fake nickels or the the last oh,
1: week? Well, yeah, because so <laughs> J P Morgan bought a bunch of bags of stone, but it was only like a million dollars of of stone yeah. that was it was supposed to be nickel. This is this is one hundred and seventy five million dollars to buy a startup, but but for J P Morgan and Chase, this is nothing either, right? Like maybe this is the the issue. I, so yeah, the, I think you have a legit questions like who did the due diligence, if any, on this. So, how many people did she say was using this app? Four point two five million users is what she
0: she reported out.
1: And it turned out that it was like none, right? It was totally a fraud. The vast majority
0: were made up fake email addresses, basically. Yeah,
1: that's incredible. Wow, good job, J.P. Morgan Chase. <laughs> I'm sure somebody lost their job on that one.
0: Well, I'm, it's it's good that like you know she get arrested, she get caught, but it also sounds like it's another one of like like this tech founder like. I, th- I think a lot of these tech founding CEOs that are committing frauds, I think, just like uh, the FTX guy, I mm-hmm. think they know what people want to hear and they just tell them, and people just buy right in.
1: Yeah,
0: and and he he did it. Uh, Theranos did it. Um, Elizabeth Holmes, right, with the yep. little blood drop thing. Like the the market's just ripe, or people are very uh, easily influenced if somebody says the right things to them. But really, that's the ultimate old grift of selling snake oil. There's nothing different yeah. about the grift, It's just different now, uh, what they're selling. It's just
1: tech. It's tech now instead of uh, essential oils. Yeah. Right. Well, hey, here's here's a fraud that um, Tino sent in on the live stream that you know brings it a little more close to home. It's a CPA in Bakersfield who stole three hundred fifty-five thousand from investors. A Bakersfield-certified public accountant has pleaded guilty to wire fraud after stealing $355,000 from investors over a four-year period and using the money for personal expenses, according to federal authorities. Jeffrey Todd Stewart, 57, got more than $2 million from investors between 2014 and 2018 for expenses he said were needed for an overseas business deal. According to a release from the U.S. Department of Justice, Eastern District of California, he told investors they'd see a significant return. And he just used the money for personal expenses, including mortgage payments, trips to Las Vegas, and gambling. He faces up to 20 years in prison and a $250,000 fine at his August 21st sentencing. So it's not just JPMorgan Chase that's getting scammed. It's just regular, probably clients, I'm guessing, right? You're, just go to your clients and say, oh, hey, I've got this great investment scheme. Give me your money. And people don't do their due diligence. And, and I think this next story, it's talking about block. Right, so Block, which
0: was bef- uh, was square, right? So when I say Block, it's we're talking about Square, not HNR Block, not HNR Block Square Cash App. This combines both parts of this. You have over here on one hand lots of fraud happening on their platform, and then B, Squares and Block are very interested in hitting their numbers. So Hindenburg Research, remember you talked about Hindenburg two three weeks ago. They wrote up about that Indian company, and then who was the one before that? Well, weren't They're, they the on Wirecard? Sellers.
1: Didn't Wirecard, Hindenburg? I think so, Hindenburg yeah. caught Wirecard, and that Wirecard. was a huge deal. Um, yep. So, you're saying Hindenburg wrote a report about Block? Square. Block, yeah. Block, okay. Square now. And lots
0: of interesting things. And we've talked about this before. A lot of the direct deposit fraud that happened in PPP, even years ago when people would steal people's social security numbers and then file fake tax returns through uh, TurboTax. They just quickly spin up a cash app account. You have banking numbers, move the money, get the money out, right? And the, basically, the block has embraced traditionally the underbank segment of the population, and because of this, they've kind of have a wild west approach to their compliance, which has made it very easy for criminals to spin up hundreds and thousands of fake accounts. So they're saying their numbers are misstated. So this goes back to the your your graph in the beginning of the of the, of the episode, right, where they're trying to keep their numbers looking good for their growth right. and how many users they have, but the reality is, as many are overstated. And then on top of it, it just goes on to where almost all human sex trafficking is done using Cash App. Like this oh, just goes wow. on and on and on and on um, about how these accusations out. Now, obviously, Block just came back and revised their numbers and said that's not true and things like that. But there's like insiders now saying it's coming out, so this will be interesting to watch over the next four to six months as more news comes out about this. But I mean, we all know. But the PPP stuff, like people were using Cash App as one of these apps to move the money through. It's yeah. fraudulent PPP loans. So there's no there's no denying that it did not happen. It's just how bad is it and yeah. what are the real numbers is the open question still.
1: Well, and that's interesting what you said, David, about like the incentive to allow fake accounts on your platform is actually really high for an app like Cash App because you wanna show user growth. So it, it doesn't matter like, if you're unethical, it doesn't matter if that is legit or f- fraud. You just want to see money moving through your system. And also, you make money on every transaction. So this kind of reminds me of like Twitter's problems with fake users and a lot of social media platforms' yeah. problems with fake users because it looks good for the investors, but it's not real, and it's a negative, a very negative experience for your actual users.
0: And it's funny you brought up Twitter because it's the same founder.
1: Oh, really? It's oh, scra- yeah. So... Oh, Dorsey. Jack Dorsey. No. Jack Dorsey.
0: Jack Dorsey. He yeah. started Twitter, but, but he started Square.
1: But they were both good, and then he like left, and they got crappy. Or is <laughs> is he still running Square? And blocks? I think he's very think heavily he into Square,
0: but he's also doing this some oh. new social startup stuff on the side. He's it's um he's he he obviously he's into the bitcoins and all the other transactional type stuff as well. Um, well, you know, but, I
1: got I, I saw something about Square. Uh, they are changing their refund policy. I got an email about this because I I guess I've had a square reader in the past and they are no longer going to refund processing fees, which all I right, thought so, was like a real dick move. And it's one of those things that makes me think, like whenever a company starts doing this kind of stuff, like nickel and diming its customers, it makes me think they're either in trouble or they've reached this point of scale where they're gonna start getting crappy. All right, every so, company goes through this so life cycle.
0: I'm a listener of the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I buy a Cloud Accounting Podcast t-shirt from you, Blake. I swipe, you swipe my credit card, Square gets a piece of the action. I come back to you and be like, Blake, the shirt doesn't fit. I wanna return it. You return my money. You swipe my credit card to return the money. Square keeps the money or they charge another
1: processing fee. Uh, they are gonna, well, they used to refund the original processing fee. Okay. Now they don't. No. But this so is how you hit your it. next
0: quarter's numbers because right. now They're going to have more revenue
1: next quarter. So that would seem to indicate they're in trouble, right? Yeah. Uh, All right. Let's go on more. We're in the app news uh, phase, so shall we keep going? Yeah. I I saw that Intuit QuickBooks has launched a rest-of-world app store. This is news today on CPA Practice Advisor. Do you have any insight into this, David? Not really.
0: Other than I I actually made a note to myself. I'm like, what's the... (laughs) I don't really understand this. And then I read the article a little bit. Um, I don't have the article up, but I'm trying to remember my comment. Essentially from what it looks like, before QuickBooks had a U.S. app store, and then they'd had an app store for the U.K., Canada, Australia, and I think India. And if you were an app developer, you'd have to submit your app individually to all four of those other global regions. And if I read this correctly, it sounds like they're getting rid of all four of those. And so you basically, you'll list your app in the US app store or list it in the rest of the world app store, which in theory makes it simpler as a developer. And it looks like now other places are going to have access to that. But there was always like an other for the longest time. So maybe they've just pulled back. And then I do feel like there's a lot of uh, redo happening at Intuit right now because Mm -hmm. they also, I don't know if you saw Intuit developer announced that they have a new developer growth program for app developers.
1: I did not see that.
0: Did not see that and they've added three apps to this program and this reminds me of what we did seven years ago at intuit uh where you you'd help apps that we did this with T-Sheets, we did this with Home, like we we incubated apps to help them become successful so they're going to do this with builder trend which is construction which i kind of helped them do this already years ago <laughs> so so builder trends included again an app called katana which is like for manufacturing type work now Katana is actually the third app we launched in the Cookbooks App Store that was in this original program when it was called Mavenlink. So they got purchased by another company, rebranded, and they're right back in the same program they were, were 10 years ago, which I think so, is kind of funny. And So what's the, this program do? It's, um, Mavenlink was, uh, it's, it's evolved more into
1: a manufacturing app now. Uh, oh, no, I mean, what does this developer program do? Like,
0: Oh, they, so they nurture the apps and help them on their marketing. They're going to help them uh, make sure their integrations with QuickBooks are good. They're going to get them exposure in the marketplace with accountants, get them feedback mm-hmm. from accountants. It's, it's kind of a, a success program. And now the third app they're using this time is Uncat, which obviously that wasn't in any of this eight years ago because Uncat didn't exist eight years ago, but Uncat's also now part of the program. So it does feel like the pen... It's funny because I Feel like the last three or four years, a lot of developers were saying nobody at the Intuit developer team is around, like they're not responsive. I can't get support tickets. It was almost in these pendulums swing, right? To where developers are important, developers are not important, and now it's swinging back towards developers are important. It feels like at Intuit, and the same way that's happened in the past with accountants, accountants are important, and they kind of and they like to piss accountants off, Then the pendulum swings back, back to accountants again. So it feels hmm. like the pendulum for developers. Is swinging back to, hey, let's do stuff we used to do that works.
1: So <laughs> a way to think about that. So remember how we were talking, I think, last week about the security risk of AI and voice cloning? Well, it's happening, and it happened in my town in Scottsdale. Here's a story from our local paper. The phone number that appeared on the screen was unfamiliar. Jennifer DiStefano almost let it go to voicemail, but her 15-year-old was out of town skiing. Maybe there had been an accident. I pick up the phone and I hear my daughter's voice and it says, mom, and she's sobbing, DeStefano recalled. I said, what happened? And she said, mom, I messed up. And she's sobbing and crying, unquote. In a split second, DeStefano's confusion turned to terror. Then I hear a man's voice say, put your head back, lie down. And I'm like, wait, what is going on? DeStefano said. This man gets on the phone and he's like, listen here, I've got your daughter. This is how it's going to go down. You call the police, you call anybody, I'm going to pop her so full of drugs. I'm going to have my way with her and I'm going to drop her off in Mexico. And at that moment, I just started shaking. In the background, she's going, help me, mom, please help me, help me, and bawling. So it was a scammer that had cloned her daughter's voice and had used that recording to try and get this mom to send ransom money. Now she was able to figure it out with relatives and with the police that her daughter was not in danger, that her daughter was at home and was fine. But can you imagine getting that call as a parent?
0: I, I think I've seen this like done to grandparents. Like, oh, so and so at college. Now the real question is like where are they getting her voice from? Like is this a whole social media? Risk? Social, media social
1: media, right? If your voice is on videos on social media, it can be cloned. And I don't know, have you seen have you seen the uh, the AI Joe Rogan experience, David? Have you watched that? No, but I've seen
0: lots of these AI-generated so, things like yeah, this. Though.
1: Hector Garcia sent us both a recording of this, uh, one of the other episodes where it's, it's an AI Joe Rogan and an AI Donald Trump having a, a conversation that was generated with ChatGPT. And the script sounds real and the voices sound pretty darn close. And it's just going to get better and better. So what does this have to do with accounting and finance? people are going to be cloning voices to commit fraud, to try and get you to send international wire transfers. So all of these procedures that we've put in place around voice authentication are going to have to get redone because it's going to be too easy for the CEO to call you up or somebody pretending to be the CEO to call you up and sound like the CEO and and authorize a transfer. So I was- You're
0: almost going to have to have two forms of authentication. Like, great, Send send me an email or three, maybe send me an email. We'll do a phone call. Man, we'll do a Zoom for any amounts over a certain amount or changing bank account numbers. There's just going to have to be that because, I mean, e- if it's not voice fraud, it's just other ways people are tricking people to change bank accounts and wire money out.
1: I, I was thinking that, I, I told my wife, it's like, we need, we need a family safe word, to like, like some word that only we know in our family that we can use to authenticate. No, that's, yeah. I mean, you could do that in your company too, right? In your firm is have a word that only people in your firm know, and that's how you can, you know, verify this kind of thing. I, I, it's just this is gonna. I'm calling this now. This is my prediction. This is gonna be. We're gonna hear about big frauds being committed with voice AI technology like this. It's, if it's not already happening. If it's not already happening, it's and it's. You know, we just haven't heard about it. It's gonna happen. So be careful. Be on the lookout. Protect your family. Tell them about this kind of technology. Tell your firm about it. Tell your clients about it so they don't become a victim. It's just like when we all started getting phishing emails years ago. You gotta educate them.
0: Let's see, what other app news makes sense or comes up next that makes a lot of sense?
1: I have Does a I video wanna... about Microsoft Loop. Is that their Notion product? Yeah, it's their Notion clone. You wanna okay. watch it? I haven't actually seen it yet. We could we could watch it together.
0: So, so it's their Notion clone, which Notion really was a clone of Microsoft uh, what was their SharePoint? Was no, the OneNote. <laughs> One SharePoint note. was the original.
1: Yeah. So OneNote, Notion is an improvement on OneNote, and then instead of improving OneNote like they should have, Microsoft decides to simply create Microsoft Loop. Let's 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 learn about Microsoft Loop. Can
0: you add to the stream? Perfect.
2: Say goodbye to the frustration of jumping between apps and losing track of documents and ideas. Microsoft Loop transforms the way you work. So you can think, plan and create together like never before. Loop is made up of workspaces, pages and components. Let's break it down. Create together with shared workspaces for each of your projects. On the Loop homepage, you can access all your existing workspaces and create new ones. In a Loop workspace, you can bring everything you need for your project together in one place. To kick off a workspace, Loop can even do the searching for you, making it easy to add existing project-related information and organize it into pages. Continue adding to your workspace as your project evolves and organize it the way you want. Loop pages are flexible canvases where you can react, comment, and build on each other's ideas. Notifications help you track the things you care about and focus on what matters, all while staying in the flow of your work. co in Loop helps you ideate and co-create. Get inspired with AI-powered contextual suggestions to transform the way you create together. Don't let app barriers slow your project down. Easily share information with people outside your workspace with Loop components. Components are portable pieces of content that stay in sync across all the places they have been shared, no matter where they are updated. You can share components and create new ones, like lists, tables, paragraphs, and more across your favorite Microsoft 365 apps. You're always in control because it's easy to see where components were shared and who has access. However you work, wherever you work, Loop enables teams to think, plan and create together like never before.
1: So (laughs) I think what I, what I liked about that, that notion doesn't have is this ability to embed different apps into loop. So like if you're on the Microsoft stack, embedding a spreadsheet right there, right? That is awesome. Whereas Notion could just link out to them generally, like you can't like edit them right in a in Notion most of the time. That's pretty cool.
0: It looks a lot like Notion, and my gut instinct is if you're a Microsofty, like you're really into the Microsoft stuff and that's your skill set. Like, Did you just say pu- Microsofty? Well, I think those are the people that used to work there. But <laughs> let's say you're you're a fan, you're you're, you're, you're a Microsoft fan person, right? You're, you're a, you you love on the Microsoft, which I think the majority of our audience probably does. They love Excel. They use Microsoft. 365 stack, right? Yeah, I just don't like that thing. Looks not enough like a Microsoft Office product that I just don't see people using it. Yeah, like like they made they're trying too hard to make it look like and taste like Notion that people may not want to use it.
1: We'll see. So I felt that way about Teams at first, but have you seen the chart on like Teams user adoption? Well, that's because if you.
0: if you roll it out to all the Microsoft people, if they get one percent of the Microsoft Office people using any of these things, yeah. they win the category. It doesn't take much to move the needle.
1: Yeah, um,
0: but I think the vast majority—I don't know—it's it, fine. It looks okay. You know, you can click it around again. If you want to roll this out in your firm, you're probably just going to get this for free now. You don't have to go out and buy different software, and you don't have to go—you know—make sure Notion secure, make sure Notion you can use it for your client data. You already have your Microsoft Office 365 stack vetted out and approved. You just start using
1: it. And that's going to be the advantage, I think, for firms. All right. It's time for another word from another sponsor. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is
0: sponsored by ClientHUB. We've been talking about the lack of accountants lately, and I'm guessing that you may have your own shortage this busy season. With accounting teams spending more than 30% of their time chasing clients for information, Client Hub can help you gain one third of a body just by getting needed information from clients quickly. And now they've introduced Magic Workflow to add the power of AI and GPT to your firm. Having gotten around to documenting your processes, just give Magic Workflow a short description of the job and it will create your task checklist and even detailed instructions for you. Your team will save hours of time. When you're faced with an unusual client request, have Magic Workflow help you start the work. You only need to refine and fine-tune from there. Using Client Hub leads to happy clients and a happy firm. To schedule your demo today, head over to ClientHub. That is forward That's C-L-I-E-N-T-H-U-B.
1: All right, I think it's time for listener mail. So you have listener mail? I have listener mail. We have lots of listener mail. It has piled up. So let's turn through it. Nicholas said, Blake, love the Cloud Accounting Podcast and love what you were doing with Earmark. Just wanted to ask if you knew any good resources slash people slash podcast episodes that talk about the CPAs that want to start their own firm but keep it small. It seems like everything I've read so far talks about starting a firm and growing it and scaling it, how to market it, how to pick a niche, how to get an SBA loan to buy a book of business, etc., I don't really think I'm interested in that. I think for the time being, I would be really happy doing my own thing on the side. I feel like I'm in the minority on that. Just seeing if you could point me in the right direction on this. Thanks. So, David, I gave him some recommendations, but I wanted to hear from you first if you had any. I mean,
0: I don't think recommendations were off the top of my head, but but basically you can build a lifestyle accounting firm. People have done it. I, I mean, I think Amanda Aguilar is a great example of this. There's a, time and place in her life where she had young children. She didn't want to have the big grind of a job. And she built an accounting firm that gave her the lifestyle she wanted. It didn't have to be a gigantic accounting firm. It had to be enough yeah. to, to make ends meet, if you want to do that way. Now she's now that her kids are all grown and now she's a CEO of Paget. right? So you can, you can build a business that's right for you. It doesn't have to be build a bookkeeping firm or an accounting firm that just keeps scaling forever and just keeps growing and growing
1: and growing. Right. Well, the question is how did she learn how to do that? I mean, she taught herself a lot of stuff just like I did. Just like a lot of people did at that yeah, time went, when there yeah. weren't She wrote the book on zero. Yeah, maybe you know? maybe get the book. <clears throat> yeah. Literally wrote the book on it. I got it on my shelf there. So the question is, you know, how do you get those skills without having to learn it all from scratch? I did want to point our listeners to two podcast episodes that I recorded on the Earmark Accounting podcast. One is episode 36 with Michael Alleman of Alleman Business Group. He talks about how he built a bookkeeping practice from scratch and does it for very reasonable rates. It's called Profitable profitable Bookkeeping for Under $200 Per Month with Michael Alleman. And then the episode right after that is with Sandra York, How to Build a Six-Figure Firm on Instagram with Sandra York. That's episode 37 so if you want to listen to those, go to podcast.earmarkcp.com. Hopefully that gives you a little bit of insight. I think Instagram, depending on your client base, could be a really great way to build a firm. Lots of social media options, lots of ways to build a niche firm these days. Um, you know, Michael did um, realtors, and Sandra did uh, personal fitness coaches and, and, and that sort of thing on Instagram. And I also
0: think they're, yeah they, they're, their customers are well-defined. I think both of them do is either fixed rate slash subscription pricing. That's another you have an episode you just did an interview with Ron Baker on the subscription economy. But just to have a stat I saw. This was an article about Mind Body and My Fitness pal which if you blonde to any gyms, you went towards theory, you used Mind Body, you know. So the but it's not about them as much, but there was a, a quote in this article from a Harvard Business School study, and this is Companies that increase retention by as little as five percent grow profitability by forty-five to ninety-five percent. So, if you build your small firm and you just concentrate on servicing your clients and you keep them, you retain your clients. You're not trying to grow. You're going to have forty-five to ninety-five percent more profitability than if you lose five percent of your clients every single year. So, so you can have a small firm concentrating on keeping your clients, and you'll be profitable, very profitable.
1: I would also say check out Hector Garcia's Build a Focused Firm series that we just did. Uh, We just completed that, Hector and I. You can get the playlist on our Earmark YouTube channel. Go look for Earmark on YouTube and then scroll down to the Build a Focused Firm playlist. I'll put this into the chat and into the show notes for everybody who wants to check this out. It's, It's eight episodes all about how to build a small firm that you love that doesn't stress you out. And I, I highly recommend it. It's completely free, and you can earn free continuing education credits on Earmark for listening. So uh, it's over eight hours at this point. Uh, I also think there's groups like Bookkeeping Side Hustle, which are great. Um, you know, Even if you're not a bookkeeper, I think you can get a lot out of that on how to build a firm. Bookkeepers.com.
0: Uh, mm-hmm. And Robinson's groups I've heard Seth very good David, about that.
1: Nerdenterprises.com. He teaches people how to have a small practice. So not not all of these coaches are, you know, about high growth, although a lot of them are, right? Which makes sense because who's willing to spend the money on those kind of courses is people who want to build a, you know, ten million dollar firm someday, right? So I think there's a lot more out there for those folks. But maybe this is an opportunity for content for us to create it with earmark media, David. Um, more of that kind of stuff. So Continuing on with Listener Mail, uh, this is from Michael. Michael said, Hi Blake and David. I recently discovered your podcast and I've been thoroughly impressed with how relevant it is. I am eight years into my accounting career in community banking. For picking what I thought was a stable industry, boy, has it been a ride. I'm currently going through my third merger experience and catching waves from the SVB closure. Discussions on the barriers to become a CPA have also struck home. And I thought you might appreciate an anecdotal piece of evidence. I am currently an accounting supervisor and a CPA is typically needed to apply for a controller role. I currently have my bachelor's and finding the time and money to take additional classes has not been an option so far. As someone who does not excel in traditional classrooms, it is not an idea I relish. Also, living in Boston as a young professional out isn't cheap. The time and monetary cost of studying materials and the exam itself doesn't help either. For this reason, I'm considering either a CMA despite it being less recognizable and less flexible or steering away from accounting and into data and reporting. Thanks for the podcast and appreciate you questioning the 150 hour rule. You've inspired me to reach out to Massachusetts's board of public accountants. And it's from Michael. Thank you, Michael, for writing in. If you want to send an email to us, we are cloudaccountingpodcast at earmarkcpe.com. That's cloudaccountingpodcast at earmarkcpe.com. I got more. I, I, I can just keep going until the end here. This is good. Um, let's see here. Here's another message. Um, this is from Corey over at the Minnesota CPA Society. Hey, Blake, thanks for the podcast last week. It was a good listen. I wanted to let you know that we've launched a page on our website, mncpa.org/slash CPA pathways, that discusses the drive behind the legislation. The page also includes any coverage of the discussion related specifically to Minnesota, articles and opinion, as well as resources. Both the podcast and your piece in accounting today are listed. Thanks again for your discussion of this topic. So David, the Cloud Accounting podcast is on the Minnesota CPA Society website, and the page is broadening pathways to CPA licensure. So if you're interested in this topic, go check it out. And it's turning out to be a portal for all
0: pieces of this, not specific to Minnesota. Yeah. It's really turning out to be the, they, they need to fix the URL so it's easier to get to Or, or maybe we spin up a domain for them that points people there. Because <laughs> um, it's really becoming the, the hub for the 150 hour discussion or ev- evolution of the 150 hour discussion. So speaking of the pipeline then, Blake, I just mm-hmm. put in the private chat for you, to, if you can share it. It's a short article, essentially it was a letter to the editor. But the premise is that AI will attract more students to accounting, Hmm. And the argument is that if you, because it's uh, younger generations are gonna be more interested in accounting because this is technology and innovation. And I'd say maybe yes. If we were in a bubble where the only industry getting AI and technical innovation was accounting, yes, we would probably attract people. But I'm assuming all industries are gonna get it probably equally. So that's kind of the equalizer, but the real thing I have is I sent you a screenshot because it's from a private Facebook group and I I, I wanted to uh, crop everybody out and and you couldn't share the link. But do you have that screenshot I sent you in the Google chat?
1: Oh, no, I don't have it in front of me. Oh, you don't have it in
0: front of me? So I'll I'll summarize this this other chat, uh, which is probably good. So there was a Facebook chat from somebody who's spinning up their bookkeeping business and they watched a webinar. They were watching a webinar I'm assuming based on the vibe of her post about AI and accounting. And this is a single mom of three about to spin up a bookkeeping business, and she's like, I might just say forget it, because I can't learn it as fast as AI is currently learning it. So she's thinking of giving up on her dream of trying to spin up a bookkeeping business of her own mm-hmm. because of AI. So not only arguably AI is probably not gonna attract more students, but it might actually turn people off because accounting already is starting to become the job that will be replaced by AI, right? Accounting, bookkeeping, we keep making the top of these lists. So are we gonna actually have even more of a talent shortage? So, so for all the benefits we get from AI, it's gonna scare even more humans away.
1: Yeah, it's hard. I mean, historically, advances in technology have always led to more jobs. Oh, and yes, I have yes, something yes. perfect for that. Uh, I, I, found, I have a chart. It's basically a chart that shows what happened when spreadsheets were invented. Yeah. The spreadsheet apocalypse revisited. Oh, this is so good. I'm glad you brought this up, David. Okay. So this is John Nosta or Nosta at John Nosta on Twitter. He said, GPT lessons, bookkeeping jobs fell with the introduction of spreadsheets, but managers and financial analysts jumped fourfold. And he has a chart from the Wall Street Journal. Manager, managers jumped. Great. That's really important. <laughs> yeah. So so it, it shows um, basically in 1979, Visicalc, the original spreadsheet app, was released. And at that point, bookkeepers, accounting, and auditing clerks were still on the rise. It peaked between the release of Lotus 123 and the release of Microsoft Excel and then started to decline. So bookkeepers, accounting and auditing clerks reached 2 million jobs and since, you know, the mid 80s has been declining and is closer to a million. So we've lost almost half of those jobs over these years. And that's thanks to automation. Clearly, you don't need people to enter transactions anymore manually. Well, Until recently, I guess, you did. Um, You didn't need people to foot spreadsheets, right, or to calculate them manually, literally on paper. That's what a lot of people were doing. So at the same time, you have this rise in accountants and auditors. It's happening the whole time. Accountants and auditors were not impacted at all. It just kept on going up. It was, you know, about a million accountants and auditors for two million bookkeepers and clerks. And as the bookkeepers... Trended down to a million, the accountants and auditors went up to like it looks like 1.7, 1.8 million. So continuing to grow a lot, we're adding hundreds of thousands of jobs through these years, even though spreadsheets exist. And then the job that didn't exist was management analysts and financial managers, which kicked off with the release of spreadsheet technology and it just skyrocketed. And now we have more of those people than even the accountants. We've we went from half a million right away to over 2 million now. So here's my question.
0: Yeah, so if you stack this up, the total job growth, the, the number of jobs is much bigger post-Excel oh, yeah. than it was pre-Excel. Yeah.
1: yeah, and so my question though is, you know, that accountants and auditors line, it's sort of, it's gone up, but it's slowed down. And my question is, has it reached its peak? And is it going to start declining the way that the bookkeeper's accounting and auditing clerk's line decreased, right? That, that, that hit its peak in the mid-80s and has been on the decline ever since. Is that going to happen with accountants and auditors? And will there be some new job that didn't even exist before that now gets invented as a result of all this AI technology? The problem with traditional education is that they're not teaching us any of the stuff that we need to be successful as accountants in the world of AI. We're still memorizing generally accepted accounting principles and tax rules when you can just ask the AI for the information. And, yeah, it's not accurate right now because it hasn't been specifically trained on tax code. But people are already working on training these AIs specifically for tax because it's a lot of money to be made. It's I gonna- think that.
0: I was listening to the Accounting Twins podcast and Becky, one of the accounting twins, she's the one who went into private accounting, right? So she has her first job and she, part of the episode, she talks about how, why did we have to memorize all this stuff in college? She's like, every formula I need, somebody's already typed into an Excel. It's just already there. <laughs> like, like, I don't have to come up with anything on my own. It just exists in Excel already.
1: Yeah. yeah. So it's a, I think it's a good question. I, I think that accounting as we know it today is gonna go away. A lot of it is just gonna be gone just like bookkeeping. A lot of bookkeeping went away. But there's always going to be a need for, well, chat is doing a really good job of the human element too, right? If people can just chat, like text an AI and get their taxes done and get their accounting done, we've always said that the human element is something you can't replace with automation. But is that going to be true forever? People are willing to use TurboTax and to chat with those people That are theoretically behind the scenes at TurboTax, you know, the enrolled agents and the CPAs that are working on the live thing, they just replace them with an AI. I mean, it's going to be like, uh, I guess the analog is, you know, what's going to happen when we finally have driverless car technology? Are people going to stop using Uber? No, they're going to use it even more, right? So they just need to get where they're going in a lot of cases. But I mean, in the meantime, like for the next decade, there's still a humongous opportunity to utilize these tools and to build a practice. And to help all these people that can't do it themselves and the tools can't do it themselves and people haven't done the done the work to create these fully automated solutions. I, I mean, like,
0: yeah, every you. business
1: still needs an accountant, right? You, you can't replace the accountant or the bookkeeper with the AI. And it, it's just like these actually driverless car technologies, right? They're having trouble with, like, they, they still haven't figured out how to replace the human for that you know, 10% of the time when you actually need the human judgment.
0: But yeah, and, and it's not that you're going to, you listener, are not going to be replaced. What it means is you're probably not going to be able to ever hire people in the future to do this work, so you need to use some AI tools to 4X your productivity. Yeah, like, that, that's the reality. You're going to be doing the work of four more accountants and bookkeepers than you do today, and that's that's the ramp you're on. It's, it's not you're not going to be replaced. You're just going to do 4X the work.
1: Yeah, you're going to be expected. Be, yeah. You're going to be that much more effective.
0: And going well, back to and your this comment, is, this about is why the billable hour. <laughs> what are you yeah. going to bill? Oh, this You're gonna is going to bill be the, people for 24 hours a day.
1: AI <laughs> is going to be the death of the timesheet because it's going to make us so much more productive that it will make no sense to bill by the hour. Your, your hourly rate will have to go from, you know, if it's $100, they'll have to go to $1,000, and nobody's going to pay $1,000. So that's going to be the end of it.
0: So you wrote it, an article, and did you give us? before we close out, the 30-second preview or why people should go read it. But the title of the article is Our Obsession with Hours is Destroying the Accounting Profession. What's the synopsis of that so people can go read that?
1: Yeah, so I co-authored this with Chris Vanover of um, Audit Club on CPA Practice Advisor. And the gist of it is just that like, the accounting profession is obsessed with tracking time and billing for time and evaluating everything we do based on the time we spend on it. And that leads to bad outcomes when it comes to education this obsession about the 150 semester hours like the fact that people think that adding 30 semester hours of education is going to make you a better cpa is is it laughable when there's nothing tied to it in terms of performance and same thing with you know the billable hour argument you know like the amount of time you spend on a project does not equal the quality it's the same thing with the education right hours in the classroom don't indicate don't equal learning necessarily and Hours spent on a project for a client don't necessarily equal positive outcomes, or like it's they're just not tied. We're measuring the wrong thing, so that's always makes the,
0: sense in some professions, for example, uh, pilot training,
1: yeah, or prostitution you to, too. You know, you have, right? but, but that, I'm
0: saying like pilots, right? Because <laughs> y- the proof that you can fly is that you were you stayed alive flying 5,000 hours in the cockpit, right? <laughs> Actually, you've, you know can, what, you know because, what, job? because it's it's it, if you don't have the skill, you'd have crashed the plane already. Way well, before I, you hit the number of hours.
1: Yeah, but but again, too, like if you're just flying on autopilot the whole time, then that's meaningless. Oh, that's true. Right? So actually, I think pilots are, that's, that's the job that's going to get automated because what's going to happen is we're going to create autopilots that can, the planes already can take off and land themselves pretty much. And the question is, when are people going to be comfortable with there not being a pilot on the plane? The AI is going to get to be, just as reliable as a human.
0: There used to be a guy that pressed those elevator buttons for you because people were afraid to do that on their own. Exactly the skill set,
1: right? Yeah. So I know it's a brave world. You know the 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 problem is the the universities aren't teaching kids what they need to know because they need to ask questions. They don't need to regurgitate answers. So if accounting programs are just teaching you to memorize the rules and regurgitate answers, that's not going to produce people that can survive but if you can ask questions, then you can get everything you need. I, I tell people that my entire career has been built on Google searches. I, I was a music major in college. I learned everything that I know by searching Google when I didn't know how to do something. When I started out in bookkeeping, I didn't have any formal training at all. I taught myself. I read the QuickBooks manual, and then I you know, searched Google for how to do stuff. And then, yeah, I took basic accounting courses, and I learned my debits and credits, and I think that's important. But most of the stuff, the advanced stuff, wasn't taught in school. Like all the tech stuff, like the, I had to learn how to do that myself. Yeah. So, <laughs> Excel. Yeah.
0: Like the, these tools you actually use in your
1: job are not taught in so the now, education system. Just replace Google with ChatGPT. And people who don't know how to Google, and there are still people that like somehow don't know how to Google things and ask questions. And it just, like that's, I know somebody's not gonna work out as an employee when they can't Google something before they ask me a question. <laughs> right? And it's going to be the same thing with ChatGPT. It's just going to make the all-stars 10 times more effective. I mean, I'm already doing it myself. Like I wrote two blog posts and, and a bunch of ad copy yesterday in like an hour with ChatGPT. It would have taken me all day before. Yeah. So I think the the reason accountants don't see it yet is because the specific knowledge, body of knowledge has not yet been ingested and and treated, right? The AI has not been trained on the tax code specifically yet. So the answers are not right, but they will be. And same thing with, you know, Gap and all that stuff. Like, actually, AI might end up writing all the footnotes to the financial statements. That's something it could probably do really well. And then it just be some human reads them and signs off on them. That might free up a lot of our time. I don't know.
0: I, I like, like Just like Intuit but they're using it with TurboTax more for consumer side. But it's only a matter of time till these tax pro, tax pro tools that people are using with all this database of tax information, in the next six months, they're going to get a chat interface slapped yeah. in front of them. So you're going to be using this. You're start playing around with it now because it's going to be in every app you use. For sure, if you're on the Microsoft stack, right? We, Absolutely. We've already talked
1: about that. Well, David, I've already taken this way over time. Where can people find you online? I'm just on all the socials at David Leary. I am at Blake T. Oliver. Send us emails. Send us your voice memos. We are Cloud Accounting Podcast at earmarkcpe.com. We love hearing from you, and we read all the messages. If we haven't yet gotten to yours, uh, I apologize. We're going to catch up in future episodes. Aaron says, footnotes idea is fantastic. Yes. I mean, somebody could make a lot of money just making a chat GPT plugin that just writes footnotes to financial statements, right? Like. Goes in, it knows gap, and knows what needs to be written. It looks at the prior. I don't
0: think there's enough computing power for that. I mean, the, the size of these footnotes—the
1: 181 are pages of footnotes in that 10K, you need yeah. to do. Yeah, I mean, it costs,
0: it's still going to be cheaper to to have junior staffers do that.
1: <laughs> well, well, the salaries are going up, David. You know, it, it won't be cheap for long. All right, I'll see you Perfect. next week, David. Bye, Bye, everyone. Time for
0: the classifieds. ClientHub automatically sends your clients a task for each expense or deposit marked as uncategorized in QuickBooks. Your team will save hours of time, and the best part that it's free. Introducing the free ClientHub Recategorized Plan. ClientHub is bringing the freemium business model to accounting apps. They are so confident that you, your team, and your clients will love the free recategorized plan that will lead you to implement all the features of the award winning ClientHub into your firm's workflows and communications. Using ClientHub in your workflow is a guaranteed ROI, especially since it is free. To schedule your demo, go to ClientHub.app. That's ClientHub.app. Is it possible to scale your firm while significantly reducing your workload so you can spend more time with your family? That's what Marie Phillips did when she tripled the revenues of her multi-seven-figure firm thanks to Future Firm Accelerate. Designed for busy firm owners, Future Firm Accelerate gives you the system, training, coaching, and the community you need to systemize your firm so that you can scale it while working less. The program is built around founder and CPA Ryan Lozanis' six-part Future Firm Framework, which he used to scale and sell his own firm, Zen Accounting, to a major international organization in just five short years. To learn more and join over 700 other modern firm owners scaling their businesses, go to www. Future dot com. That's www. Future dot com. We don't like uncategorized transactions, but we do like CATs, and we love UnCat. Thousands of accountants and bookkeepers have switched from sending spreadsheets of uncategorized transactions to their clients every month to using UnCat. It's easy, UnCat syncs with QuickBooks and gets clients' responses back so fast you can close the books on time, every time. And you're gonna love the price. UnCat is just $5 per month per client. And bonus, start a 14-day free trial at uncat.com and they'll send you a $5 Starbucks gift card. Get yours at uncat.com. Are you tired of spending hours manually adjusting your balance sheet and reconciling your accounts every month? Say hello to NetTracker. Automate tedious tasks such as adjustments for depreciation, prepaid expenses, accruals, and deferred revenue. With just a few clicks, selected balance sheet accounts are updated and reconciled. No more stress and hassle every month. NetTracker makes monthly financial reporting a breeze. Try it now with QuickBooks Online, Zero, or Sage Business Cloud, and see how much time and energy you can save. www.nettracker.com That's www.nett-tracker.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad. Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.